Over the next few weeks, uh, we are going to look at Romans, but chapters 5 to 8, which has often been called 5 to 8 as the core of the book. Uh, you'll have to decide whether that is the core of the book for your, uh, yourselves, but that has been called the core of the book. Uh, and uh, this morning is an introduction to those sermons and pretty much to um, set the scene. So uh, I'm, I'm actually not going to preach it this morning. I'm just going to take you through uh, some of the uh, scene uh, of the book of Romans. I do have one application point at the very end. And it could be controversial. Are you ready? So that means that you're going to have to stay awake for the whole of it. But uh, uh, it's commonly agreed that Paul's letter to uh, the Romans is one of the greatest uh, Christian writings uh, ever. And I think uh, what people would say about it is that they would say that throughout history, uh, it, it has shaped history that there have been times when the book of Romans has actually shaped humanity. So uh, we can uh, look at somebody like this, the the very dizzy Augustus of Hippo. Um, What a fantastic name. Can you you imagine being born into the Hippo family? (laughs) Oh dear, no, Nigel. He was actually born at 354 to 430, lived in what we now know as Algeria, and uh, is generally considered as one of the the greatest Christian uh, thinkers of all time. Uh, So at that period when when he's living, uh, 354, 430, what, what people would say is that he affected global Christianity. Uh, Anglicans and Catholics would know him today as Saint Augustine. And uh, uh, how did he begin his Christian uh, journey? He began his his journey by actually being saved by reading the book of Romans. So that was uh, him. Another dizzy person is Martin Luther. Martin Luther, 1483 uh, to 1546. A round of applause for our uh, German students. But what we don't want Andre to be is a German Catholic monk, which is what uh, Martin Luther was. He was uh, uh, a German Catholic uh, monk, uh, actually uh, chained himself uh, to a lectern Uh, so that he could read the scriptures. Uh, So in terms of chaining himself, would not eat, would not drink. And in chaining himself uh, to the lecture, to the lectern, he came across the book of Romans, uh, got extraordinarily saved. Uh, His chains fell off, uh, was liberated and became the forerunner of what we know uh, as the Reformation. So uh, affected uh, the large swathes of, of Europe in terms of salvation by faith alone, and all to do with grace, and grace alone to do with what Denzel was preaching about. Here's another dizzy person, John Wesley. John Wesley, 17. Uh, 03 to 1791, uh, credited with his brother, Charles Wesley, as founding what we now know as the the Methodist movement, uh, and actually uh, is described 
uh, often as an initiator of revival in England, Scotland, Wales, North America and Ireland. So how did that come about for John Wesley? It came about because he read the book of Romans and started to believe what God could do. It changed him. It changed his thinking from being a legalistic approach to Christianity to believing in grace and more importantly, the work of the Spirit. So what he caught through the book of Romans was what the Holy Spirit can do, which we're going to come back to uh, later. And in believing that, he saw revival. This is exciting you for what you can believe in. Uh, Here's a a Swiss guy, uh, Karl Barth. Karl Barth is a a Swiss Reformed theologian. And um, he, uh, in uh, writing theology... Um, uh, did an experiment, uh, which was, uh, is Romans to do with just theology and great people? Is the book of Romans. And he found out that uh, when asked what he described as the humble believer, whatever that may be, that's probably you and I, he found out that there were just thousands and thousands and thousands of people in ordinary life that were affected themselves by reading the book of Romans. And so he wrote wrote it and he said, no, I don't believe it's just for the theologian. My experience is that there are ordinary people whose lives have been transformed by this book. That was his experience. So there are 16 chapters. That's not a lot. And my challenge for you would be, how about that you uh, read 16 chapters this week of Romans? I've not asked you to do that much, have I? I've not asked you to lay down your life, uh, lose a limb. I've not asked you to even fast, uh, to give up whiskey, Rupert. I've just asked you to read the book of Romans in a week. 16 chapters. You could read it like this, two chapters a day. And next Sunday, you get up a little bit earlier and read four. So I want to ask you, church, would you read the book of Romans with an expectation of Augustus of Hippo, Martin Luther, John Wesley and Karl Barth, that you would be impacted in the same way that these people do. So let's uh, go on. Here we are in Rome. And uh, this is uh, what, um, the, what we would have seen uh, as, as, as Italy as we know today. But if you notice some of the uh, some of the um, name places are, are slightly different. So that's Italy in the time of Paul. And the letter uh, claims to be written by the Apostle Paul. So Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So the question is, is there any dispute that Paul wrote a letter to the church in Rome? What do the theologians believe? No, of all denominations and of all backgrounds, they all agree this was Paul. Cheer for our good theologians. 
Thank you. Um, Romans chapter 1, verse 7. Uh, to all those who in, in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. All those in Rome uh, may refer to one group. It may refer to separate groups. Uh, we don't know. Uh, there's Rome. Uh, at the time of, uh, of, uh, of uh, the writing, and they may have been separate groups that, that uh, around there, the, the black line gives us the extremity of the city, the hills are around it, and that sort of stuff, the square gives you where the major sort of uh, population centres were. It's interesting um, that uh, they may have been one group, there may have been several groups, but there was one group, which we can go back to, which is uh, down on the blue bobs. Can you see uh, Campania down the bottom? There's a little blue bob that I've put on. That is a a place called uh, uh, Putoli. Uh, It was 180 kilometres southeast of Rome. And uh, at the time that Paul's writing, it's often thought that the letters included that group. Now, I don't know what you think about this, uh, but it's like you guys going uh, to London on a regular basis to meet with, with believers so that you can be together. Now, I actually find that statement a challenge because some of us now in, in our modern day of trains and planes and boats, we think 10 miles is too far away. But for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of believers, we know that there were people traveling on a regular basis, 180 kilometers for the sake of believers, the family of God and what they do. Do you not find that a challenge? I find that a huge challenge because people go, oh no, can't get a borderlands. Newport, you know, it's sort of Newtown, isn't it? Newtown, so far away, you know, that sort of stuff. Here's people that, you know, know the family, the gospel, what we're doing together matters. So we need to go back. Uh, and that's where they went. So there, there we are. When Paul uh, wrote to the Romans, this guy was in charge, Nero Claudius Caesar. Do you know what he did later in life? He burnt the place down. Um, but at this point, when Paul is writing, he actually, he's not only a handsome chap, a bit pale, um, I think, needs to see a doctor. But actually, uh, at this point, he was actually stable. So he was emotionally uh, stable, and uh, it's often thought that Rome was uh, uh, being governed uh, quite well. Uh, the city itself, going back to that city there, the city was estimated <coughs> to have a population of some 400,000 So you're thinking uh, in terms of a little bit smaller than uh, Bristol or Liverpool. That's how you are thinking in terms of. uh, Now, uh, Rome attracted um, people from all over the Mediterranean region. Uh, And uh, uh, because the the Roman people were brilliant at, at keeping history and keeping stats, we know what that Rome looked like at the time that Paul wrote it because we know that we have great um, people that wrote stuff down and, and kept journals and, uh, and counted. They seem to, the Romans were famous for counting. 
So they counted, and what happened is that Rome at this time was made up of 30% slaves. So of the 400,000, you can work it out, the brainies, uh, there was 30% (coughs) slaves, people that were, were bought to either work for or live in families and companies and, and even uh, the Roman army. So that was 30%. There were 30% freed men and women. So they were slaves that had actually earned their right to be free. So they were slaves, but they'd earned their right. Some of that came through the Roman army. So you, uh, if you d- did service, you could be freed. Sometimes your owner gave you freedom. Sometimes if you did something significant, so if you helped somebody or did something, the Roman um, senate would grant you freedom. Um, and so, they would, uh, so that's what happened, uh, which means that there were 40% freeborn. Which is interesting, isn't it? In today, you would think that that would make to racial tension uh, in, in terms of the city, but only 40% are freeborn. Now, within that, um, there are 10% Jews. So, uh, Rome has attracted uh, 10%, and that 10%, the majority of them were slaves, some of them were freed, and some of them were free, freeborn. So there we are. That's that lovely book. So what about the church? Well, we have no precise information on how and why the church was established at Rome. But we've got some ideas. So um, in Acts chapter 2, uh, uh, we, we, we are at Pentecost. And at Pentecost, it does tell us that in Jerusalem were visitors from Rome. So one of the assumptions is that they were, they were filled with the Spirit, they were baptized, they went back to Rome. That's, um, that's a possibility. It tells us so in the Bible. If it tells us so in the Bible, it's true. They were there. Uh, the tradition is that Peter <laughs> established the church. And now we're in real trouble uh, because we're talking about the traditions of the Catholic uh, faith. Uh, there, is, there is that tradition but the letter clearly tells us that, that the church existed before there was any other apostolic input. So they existed first. We know that um, because Paul is writing to them having never visited. Uh, in, pa- in fact, Paul didn't have anything to do with the church until he wrote the letter. We can see that. So Romans chapter 1, verse 10 Uh, You are always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may know at last, uh, I may know at last uh, succeed in coming to you. Verse 11, for I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift. So what do we know? Uh, We know that, that Paul wanted to go, that he longed to see them. So what is the, what, how was the church formed then? Well, we have the, the little glimmer of Pentecost and people going back to Rome full of the Spirit, uh, speaking in tongues as we know that they did, uh, being baptized and going back and, uh, and, evangel- uh, uh, and evangelizing in the city. Um, but the probability actually is that uh, travelers and, and uh, um, uh, traders uh, bought the gospel themselves to Rome. So in arriving there, they would share their faith. It seems that the first converts 
were Jews. And I think the, the, uh, the way that that is often thought about is that if you want to uh, share something, we'll find somebody with a history and heritage. So they, they sought out Jews and, and found them. And, uh, and uh, we know that these Jews uh, began to gather and began to do strange things like tell other people about Jesus. We know that because... In history, it tells us that the Senate had to meet because the Jews were telling people about Jesus and, and they were singing. It's terrible, isn't it? So it's like living next door to James when he's come home from university and he's got his music up and the neighbour complains to the local government because James is playing his music too loud and we need to do something about it. So the Senate meet, Rex and Borough Council meet, and they say, we're going to do something about this really noisy James guy, and he's got to turn his mouth, or we're going to kick him out. And effectively, that's what happened. We know we've got the, the records of the Senate, and in the records of the Senate, it said that they were, they were telling people about other gods because they believed that their emperor was a god. So they're telling people about Jesus, and the blasted lot are singing. They're making far too much noise in Rome, in the city. So the Senate said, what should we do about this? Shall we kick them out? And later on, they actually did kick them out, but they came to a decision that at first, their only thing would be, we would view them as a threat. This could be a potential threat to our city. So that's the way that we go. So we know also that they were, that they were a collection of Jews um, because Paul refers in the letter to Jews being in the church. So he, in the letter he refers to Abraham as their forefather. Now if they were not Jews, he would not have done that. And he refers to them as a people who have already known the law. So again, uh, these are people that have known the law. They had to be Jews. Uh, and, but they are Jews who have become Christians. But if the, the, the initial converts were Jews, it didn't stay that way uh, because um, Paul uh, eventually uh, tells us about a Gentile number. Romans chapter 1, verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, for I've intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as amongst the Gentiles. So as Paul is writing, the Gentile number is beginning to grow. That's non-Jews. So unless you're a Jew this morning, uh, here, you are a Gentile, okay? That's you. That's me. I'm I'm a a Gentile. I'm a non-Jew. That's why in the midst of writing, Paul does actually say to them, come on guys, I want you to accept one another. I want you to, and he speaks of being a servant, not just to Jews, but also um, to, to Gentiles. So let's just go back a little bit. We'll go back to that map. Um, there's a little bit of a, a, a thing to show you. Can you see that down that thing there? That is, if ever anybody goes to Rome... That road coming up down there is the Appian Way. And if you go to Rome today, you can walk on the Appian Way. So if if Belinda and uh, Steve do do their uh, Mediterranean cruise, and if you've ever done it, uh, what they'll do is they'll take Steve and Belinda down there, 
and look at it like this, and we will expect a photograph, Steve, of you on the Appian Way. Now, it's one of the major routes into, uh, into Rome. And, uh, but according to Roman historians, uh, that area is called the uh, Transliterbarium region of Rome, uh, built around the Appian Way. So this sort of area here. We, we are. That's where most of the Christians were, uh, and they a uh, small number of them lived uh, in in better places. Those would have been the Christians that lived uh, as slaves in a better house, or the free. They would have lived in a better house, but that was uh, where most of them gathered. Now, I want you to imagine a three to five, maybe a little bit story. Um, apartment block usually one room and made out of wood and so in this area that's what you'd have walked into when you saw them they call them um, insulae the the roman word for sort of wooden apartment blocks one room very dark you can still see uh, if you want to Google it, you can have a look at it. You can still see the sort of idea of that today. So they, would, they were often built uh, against a, a large stone wall that they, they put a bit of wood joists in and built them up, and they lived in there. There could have been um, as up, to, up to 12 in, in a room. And this is that area there that the Christians were singing in. So you can imagine, it's not like having James in his road. It's like having James in a wooden block of flats uh, and the whole thing. So the whole thing is uh, potentially a little bit uh, riotous. The problem with that, uh, these wooden buildings in, on the Appian Way, is that they were fire traps. And of course, famously, uh, Rome would be set on fire and this is one of the areas that it would start in. Uh, and uh, so they lived in quite what we would call um, uh, squalor. So uh, let's go on a bit. The church. Uh, There is a suggestion that these Christians were actually persecuted and some put to death. So their faith uh, in regard to the way that they were living was, was an open faith. It was being contested by the Senate and the product was that they were persecuted. So this is not like us gathering So um, it is often thought that the people that were walking from the uh, Putolia, uh, 180 kilometres away, some of them never got to the meetings because they were persecuted on the road to Rome. Now, if you knew that, you wouldn't go, would you? But such is these people's faith that they're going knowing that they might not even get to Rome. And Paul acknowledges in this because he then instructs them on how to deal with persecution. How do you deal with people taking, uh, taking you, putting you in prison, uh, persecuting you physically, and even putting you to death? So Paul says, okay, we need to be biblical in our attitudes towards people. This is, what, this is Paul's answer to persecution. Romans 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you and do not curse them. Thank you, Paul. How about this one? Romans chapter 12, verse 17 to 21. 
repay no one for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. Verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all. Verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave the wrath of God. For as it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy, your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Verse 21, do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's a challenge, isn't it? This is a, that is a foundational attitude in the church of Rome. Amazing. Do you not find that a challenge? <laughs> I find that ridiculously challenging. I just want to get my own back sometimes. Okay, date and place of writing. Uh, Paul seems to have written the letter while in Corinth. We are now 20 years on from the, ro- from the Damascus Road experience. So you've got to take that and add 20 years. Because when you're reading your Bible, you often think that they, it occurs quite quick. So um, it isn't. So when Paul's writing this, 20 years have gone on into his ministry and he's writing from uh, Corinth. There's uh, Corinth. So we're talking about Greece, really. Uh, so here it is, just so that you can't spot it down over here. Look at that. Fantastic. There, here it is. Uh, I think he's on a Thompson's Greek holiday, 18 to 30, but that's what he's doing, but he's in Corinth. How do we know that, that this is, uh, how do we know that he's here? Well, I don't know whether you are like me, but when you get to Romans chapter 16, which will be the test next Sunday morning, because by the time you get to next Sunday morning, you will get Romans 14, 15, 16, whatever. And you'll get to, get to Romans 16, and you'll just look at all these little things that he says. Dear Paul, you know, I thank him, and I, he's great, and I love his burgers, and all that sort of stuff. And you just think, I'll give this a miss. Can I just encourage you, don't give it a miss, because it's very important contextually. It's, it, it helps you to know where and what is going on. So in Romans chapter 16, the, 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 uh, the person that we, the, the chapter that we dislike the most and believe that it's not God-breathed and useful for anything, uh, you should read because it tells us about what happened in Rome. And so what we know is that in chapter 16, uh, a lady called, uh, there's a lady called Phoebe, a servant of the church at, uh, uh, at a place called uh, Sucheria. And Sucheria is the port. And there it is, look. Oh, oh. It's the port to Corinth. See it? There we are. And Paul's saying, uh, he talks about this lady. So we know that he's here because he's referring to this. See, you've, you've looked at it and gone, oh, no, 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 time for that. But now we know. We also know that he has a host that he's living with the wonderful Gaius. And Gaius was baptized by Paul, well I never, at Corinth. How do I know that? Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 it says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except some wonderful names, Crispus and Gaius, 
So we know that he's here. So he's writing the letter most definitely from here. Uh, it also tells us it also tells us that he's with Timothy. Describes Timothy as his fellow worker. Uh, it tells us about a guy called uh, Sospiter. Describes him as his kinsman. Uh, a bloke called er- Erastus. And Erastus, the wonderful Erastus, is the city treasurer. And guess where he was the city treasurer from? Corinth. How do we know that? It says in Romans chapter 16. And it says in Corinthian records. Non-biblical records that the man Erastus was the city treasurer looking after them. So you have to think of him as the Steve Hawkins of Gateway Church. He's looking after the money. And that's what he's doing. So we know that that does. Now if you combine that with Acts chapter 18 to Acts chapter uh, 20, uh, in that period where Paul is in this area, in Ephesus and Athens and, and Greece and, and uh, all that area over here. Sorry, Ephesus is over here. Look, Athens and Corinth, we know that. We know that he was in that area for a period of four years, AD 50 to AD 54. So that's when the letter is being written. So it, uh, <laughs> I told you no application. The reason I'm telling you this is to just read the book blind. Okay, so what is the occasion? Why did Paul write to the church? Why did he write such a letter? Well, when you get to Romans chapter 1 in the morning, bunch of liars and cheats, Romans chapter 1 in the morning, 4 o'clock, set the alarm, reading Romans, it tells you, it says that Paul wanted, uh, had not been in Rome before and he longed uh, and wanted to visit. So we know that he wanted to go. It says there that he had been prevented from visiting, which means that he tried to visit before but couldn't make it. He said that he has the opportunity of going to Spain. So he's just like any other English person. He's on his way to Spain. Um, and uh, he's on his way to Spain. And he thinks that if I'm on my way to Spain, going back to that map, I can leave Corinth, I can trot down here to Jerusalem, which he's going to do, and then what he can do is that he can uh, go to Rome. And the reason that he, he, he says that is that he has collected money from the churches in Macedonia. And up here, look, he's collected money. He's going to take it. Uh, all the way down to the church in Jerusalem because the church in Jerusalem is struggling. And he has an idea. And his idea is that in Rome, he could do the same. And I can collect some money from Rome. It will help me in my trip and I will be on my way to Spain. And he tells them that. He says, I'm coming, but I'm coming with a cap. And you've got to give something because I'm on my, I'm on my way to Spain. There are some believers in Spain uh, they need your help. He also says that he can strengthen them, which is a lovely expression. So he believes that it's worth him his while going because he can input something and the church will be stronger from his visits. And then he says a tantalizing thing. He says, I have a spiritual gift that I wish to impart to you. And theologians go do lally over said phrase. Because what is the spiritual gift? 
If you are from a reformed position, like Phil Harmon and myself, it of course is the Word of God. Amen. That's it. I'm going to bring the Word of God to you. Well, come on. It's not the Word of God. It says it's a spiritual gift. And okay, Although one spiritual gift is the gift of teaching, let's just be honest with this. This could be any of those. So let's just be really honest with ourselves. We don't know. But it could be any of them. But you can't just say it will only be this one. It could be any of the spiritual gifts. So he could have wanted to prophesy. He could have wanted to help them in regard to tongues. He could have uh, wanted to bring all sorts of different spiritual gifts to them that we don't know. But it wasn't going to be just one, was it? It could have been any of them. So I don't, we don't know. But he wanted to impart it. And that's the key phrase. Because the impartation is by... How do you impart something? By the laying on of hands. So here's the answer to the reformed question. When was the last time that you saw preachers preaching with their hands on anybody? Please turn to Romans chapter 2. So the answer is, guys, it could not have been teaching because it's imparted it's something that he believes he could pray for and that they would, they would experience. So that leaves it more tantalizing. Rachel's gone off just in case I did it to her. But <laughs> so he also says, I'm an apostle, which is interesting because he sees himself as an apostle. So he feels that he has responsibility for their spiritual state. So he said, no, I must come to you because God has called me for an apostle. And that even though I don't know you, I actually feel before God, I am responsible for you. So I must get to you, which is the way. And then in Romans chapter 15, he, he clearly states his position. He says, but on some points, I have written to you very boldly by the way of a reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So there's the spiritual gift, and there's the Holy Spirit. So he wanted to ensure that the Christians in Rome understood clearly that it's the Holy Spirit that works in people's lives that brings sanctification. You can't batter somebody to death to make them holy. It is a work of the Spirit. They change by that. That's where. As it turned out, the events in Jerusalem meant that there were further delays uh, to Paul, uh, which changed his plans. And now you have to weep with me. He never actually did get to Rome. The only time that he got to Rome was when he went as a prisoner. Sad. You go, oh, please. Oh, thank you. It's hard work, isn't it, for you? Go with me. Themes in the letter. Um, Romans is a, a profoundly theological letter. So it has so many subjects which cause actually so many arguments, so many disagreements in regard to what is the theme of the letter. And um, I'm not going to give you my opinion till the end. That's my application point. And I'm not going to give you any references either, because if I do, it will just take you too long. But these are some of the... Let's put it like this. If the Apostle Paul was writing to us, 
How would he write to us? And what would his concerns be? So you're looking at these themes, not as themes, which I, I really don't like that expression. What are the themes in Romans? No, these were the Apostle Paul's concerns for people. And I prefer it that way because I'm just strange. So the first one is God the Father. Paul's, Paul's heart for them was that they should know God as their father. And he saw that as vitally important. So throughout the book, he, t- he begins to talk about God. As it goes through, he says, look, I want to introduce you to God as the one and only God. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The only wise God. And he goes on to say, look, this Father that we have, his wisdom and his knowledge are unfathomable. His judgments are perfect. His power is immense. His nature is unquestionable. His righteousness is unattainable, except through his Son. The book goes through. The love of God is introduced in the first chapter it goes and begins to expand. God's sovereign will and purpose is repeated time and time again. He said, look, God is the father of salvation. And he, and he goes through to Romans 8 and he says, God is not just your father, but he's your Abba father. What can we conclude from that? The, the conclusion is that there were people in the church in Rome that needed to hear God as their father. It's not a theological theme. It's a pastoral whatever. I don't know what the word is. It's a pastoral no no. I don't know. He's 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 wanted to he's just wanting them to know. When you get these great commentaries, you know, I bought a couple over over Christmas on Amazon and they get themes. And you go, No, come on, Paul's writing about people. He's writing about the issues in the heart of people. And he's, he's writing it because people are struggling with the idea of God and God being a father. More than that, God being Abba, father, daddy. Intimate relationship with the father. So he writes and he themes it throughout the book. This is one for Phil Harmon. Jesus Christ. Romans, when I were a lad, was referred, uh, referred to as a Christological book. The book is about Jesus. Well, yeah, of course it is. That's common sense, isn't it, really? Uh, and what, what he is trying to impress people on is he's trying to get people to understand the same thing that was coming through prophetically in our worship this morning, that Jesus Christ is through all and in all, and the only answer to your and my life is by putting him first. That's the pastoral issue. That's what he's trying to say. Look, And he's trying to say that in the context of persecution. So what, what do you do? Do you run from it? Do you hide from it? Do you not live? How do you fear? Their, their problems, by the way, are greater than your and mine. Let's just put this in context. And so he's saying, with greater problems, the answer is Jesus. And he's writing it pastorally. So, Romans being referred to as Christological. He said, well, how does he describe that? He says, what God does, he does through Jesus Christ. So, jo- so he goes on and he says, God will judge the, me- the se- men's secrets through Jesus. Believers will be justified by God through the redemption of Jesus. They will have peace with God 
through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, you'll be reconciled to God. That God's peace reigns in our heart through Jesus Christ. And God gives the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Everything that you have is through him and in him, and he's the main player. And that's what he's trying to get them to do in the context of persecution. But arrive the Pentecostals and the Charismatics. Because they say it's the Holy Spirit. Let me just say, have you ever noticed something? <laughs> of course it's going to be the Holy Spirit because, because Paul is not going to talk about God the Father, God Jesus Christ, without the Holy Spirit because he's Trinitarian. So he's not ever going to miss this guy out, is he? So, okay, the Pentecostals highlighted it and they're right to highlight it. But just say, the reform guys, it was never going to be about God the Father. It was not just going to be about Jesus. It was going to be about the Trinity, folks. So, of course it is. Why did he want to do that? It links back to the thing. He felt that spiritually, that there was something he needed to impart to them. There was something that he needed to impart. And his view was that as a collection of people, they were lacking the power of the Holy Spirit. Context again, persecution. How on earth do you live? How on earth do you live? Well, you live with a cold doctrine of Jesus Christ and the wonder of God your Father. No, you don't. You live empowered by the Holy Spirit that helps you to understand those two things. You cannot understand those two things without that. It doesn't work. It's head knowledge. That's all it is. There is an experience to be had that releases you by the Holy Spirit into those things. And Paul needed them to know that. It's pastoral. It always is pastoral. So... Romans refers to as the book of the Holy Spirit by the Pentecostals, the Holy Spirit. How do they come to that conclusion? Well, the word Holy Spirit is talked about five times, the Spirit of God four times, the Spirit of Christ once, the Spirit of adoption once, the Spirit 15 times. Paul starts the book by introducing it, uh, by, uh, by talking about the power of the Spirit. He finishes it by talking about the power of the Spirit. The book starts and ends with the power of the Spirit. His, his heart is that the believer might be affected and live empowered. It's an empowered life. It's not a dutiful life. It's an empowered life. How, how are we doing? Oh, blow me. Uh, the righteousness of God. We'll do this one quickly. Why, why was there a problem with the righteousness of God? There was a problem with the righteousness of God because people could not accept the fact that they did not need to earn themselves before God. That it was, there was a dutiful... If I do A and B and C and D and, and uh, those sort of things, they will make me acceptable to God. So again, it's a pastoral thing. He is dealing with it um, because he's thinking that they... They need to grasp this wonderful thing of what the Bible calls imputed righteousness. The status of being utterly righteous by God through the work of Jesus. What he's trying to get them to understand is our sin is placed on Jesus 
and his righteousness is placed on us. That's imputed right. And, and theologians argue that from chapter 118 to 11 to 36, that is all he talks about. And I would say that is the reason that that exists, the reason that this exists in Romans still exists today is that in our heart of hearts, we still try and achieve in terms of uh, our relationship with God. It's still intrinsically almost there. And Paul knows that. He's writing that. You know, to, he comes up in other themes in Ephesians and Galatians. He keeps writing it, keeps going, look, look guys, you know, and he's trying to say, look, look, it's grace that does it. It's grace that does it. So the imputed righteousness of God. Here's the other one. Uh, we get to some controversial ones in a minute. Uh, justification. Is it about justification? Well, of course it is. Of course it's about justification. Because what Paul wants to know is he wants to say to the people, look, it's magnificent what God has done in you, guys. Isn't it wonderful? So, of course, it's about justification. It's about a little bit of a party. Celebrate, guys. Look what God has done in your lives. So it refers to God's decision as a judge to justify sinners who believe in his son. That is, to confer on them the status as being declared not guilty. Uh, and many have called this, this is Paul's fighting doctrine. Romans is Paul's fighting doctrine. And, and the reason they say that is because this doctrine, what, what it does is that it smashes all other religions. And that's why they say this is what Paul's writing about. Because justification by faith, the fact of being declared not guilty, the fact that you can't do anything to earn your, your salvation, the fact that you've stood before the judge and Jesus has stood in your place and he's taken his punishment upon yourself and the judge stands before you and goes, okay, he took your punishment, declared not guilty. Paul in Romans chapter 5 says, this is not only good enough for you, this is good enough for the nations. And he goes, whoa. You know, and he's wanting them. He's wanting them to. He's wanting to help them so that they might be able to spread the gospel. How are you going to spread the gospel, guys? You're going to spread it by this wonderful message of justification, by being declared not guilty. How does that work in Rome? It works in Rome because, of course, you have to offer your sacrifices to God. You have to commit allegiance to all those gods and say, "No, that isn't the way that salvation comes." So here we go. Faith. Again, we're back to the Pentecostals and the Charismatics. The book is about faith. Well, of course it's about faith. They're living in Rome, for heaven's sake. You know, you've you got to live by faith, haven't you? In, in, in that sort of climate, how on earth else do you live then? Do you live by sight? If you live by sight, you'd get out of Rome, wouldn't you? And actually, they know where the other bunch are, 180 kilometers away. They just need to send a few blokes in the army and, and, you know, that sort of stuff. Of course, you've got to live by faith. And he's encouraging them to do it. And in so, he's encouraging us. We would expect that it would be about faith. Because Paul begins the letter by saying that we've been saved by faith. Faith is the crucial theme. We're saved by faith. We live by faith. And Paul uses Abraham as the, as the context of that faith, uh, particularly in the phrase, uh, the righteousness was a credit to him, it's by faith. 
And, and what theologians do is they say chapters 1 to 3 lead up to Paul's faith discussion regarding Abraham and chapter 5 to the end build on that argument. It is by faith. What we will do by belief. What is the prayer meeting about tonight? It's about gathering to pray about what we're believing God for. We act as a church by faith. How are we going to do some ridiculous things? By faith. It's not going to look like, it's not going to work on paper. It doesn't work on paper. You can't live in Rome on paper. That's what Paul's saying. You can't live it. And you see, when you live in those confines, faith becomes something very personal and very real to you. When you live in our climes, where nothing is done by faith, it isn't, it isn't at all the way that we live. So we find this a little bit contrary. And Paul's bringing that in there to them because he knows that they've got to continue to live by faith, but he's writing it so that we might know that we have to do what we do by faith. There's uh, a couple of others. That's the Mosaic Law. Why is he writing about the Mosaic Law? It's the problem between the Jew and the Gentile. That's the problem. We'll come to Israel in a minute which is what everybody says the book's about. And then I'll I'll just read it, and then I'll get over the issue quite quickly. The Mosaic Law. Uh, Paul in the book is dealing with a pastoral issue of Jew and Gentile. You have to remember that. It's like saying, uh, the reason I'm writing is because of Paul Smith's view and Rupert's view. And the people that have got... It's just, that's who's right. There are Jews and Gentiles in the church. Phil Smith, Paul Smith. Now, Paul Smith's is the... Uh, yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, no, Paul Smith smells much better than you. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's got that joke, have they? No. Have you got a Paul Smith? Do you like Paul Smith? I get emails to Paul when I send the email that I sent to them. Oh, do you? Yeah, I do. Oh, okay. I quite like Paul Smith after... Oh, sorry. I mean. <laughs> anyway, Phil Smith, so... So we've got, what we've got in the church is we've got some people that think completely different to one another. They exist in the church. So Paul is not writing a theological thing. He's writing to them to understand each other's position. Uh, and we'll come back to the, the, the issue of Israel in a minute. Uh, Paul, in the book, defends the right of Gentiles to be included. And he's writing that to Jews. And he's saying to the Jews, are you ready, guys? Uh, just sorry to mention this, but these, these Gentiles can be accepted in the church without having to go circumcision, which, which were in the demands of the law of Moses, which is what the Jews were saying. If you want to be a part of this church, you've got to go and get it sorted. That's what they were saying. So Paul's going, no, you haven't got to go and get it sorted. You're all right, guys. And there's a huge relief from the Gentiles, as you can imagine. Uh, and, uh, uh, and Paul uh, proclaims that the gospel is acceptable. To, you, you, you don't want to do it either, Tom, really. Don't volunteer for that, um, <laughs> Jew or Gentile. Uh, he's saying that receiving the law was one of Israel's great privileges but the problem is, guys, that you are saying that you receive this great privilege, you are arguing for it, but the truth is you haven't followed it. So why are you telling these guys to do something that you guys have not failed to do in other areas? So we say, now, that has all gone. Everyone is uh, saved apart from the law, and he instructs them and leads them uh, to Jesus, which is what he does. 
And, and that leads on to another argument, which is this, Israel. And the, in Romans, there are the most controversial verses towards Israel that have ever existed on the face of this planet. And of course, so much angst. So what is Paul writing about Israel for? Well, if we go back to here, he's writing pastorally. We have to remember that. Because often it's thought about, and we'll come to this, about land and a people group. He is writing about this and this because there were Jews and Gentiles in the church. It's a pastoral issue, first and foremost. It's not about the, the, the future. So let me, let me put this in context. I will read it to you so that I don't make any slip-ups. The most controversial of all the themes... The place of Israel in God's plan. Uh, This in our day has meant an emphasis on prayer for the land of Israel and prayer for the Israeli people. Paul argues that the Jew and Gentile are alike in the matter of sin and judgment and also in the matter of salvation. He acknowledges that there have been advantages to being a Jew and he tells them not to boast about it and that they have no free pass to salvation. He tells Israel that they should be responsible for their failure. And he quotes Isaiah to back that up. And then he states that although that you have rejected God, God has not rejected you. And your stumbling has meant that salvation has come to the Gentiles. And that salvation to the Gentiles is so Israel can consider its ways, turn back to God, this time through salvation in Jesus Christ, and so Israel will be saved. In a nutshell, that's it. I'm not going any further. How do we know that? He tells us in Romans chapter 11, 25 to 27, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come. And in this way, Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish all ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So what do I think about this? This is the final moment. The final countdown. See, I could be in the worship band, couldn't I? You could, do you not know the final countdown? It's no good smiling at me, John. <laughs> Anybody over 50 does. More okay. So what is the centrum Paulinium? What is the central book of the Romans? In other letters, Paul makes it very clear. Some are pastoral, some are dealing with pastoral issues. I, I think this, this is what I think. I I don't know whether I can go back. No, I can't go back. Oh, yeah. I, I think this. I, I actually, this is what I think. I think Paul wanted to write about all of those things. <coughs> and he wanted them to know all of those things as much as anyone else. You know, uh, uh, any other thing. He, he wanted to include them. He wanted to include them all. And I don't think you can actually say that one is above the other. And, and down here we have some issues that he has to deal with. He has to deal with issues in any church. So why should we exclude them? But would you like to know what I think? And then I'm going to run for coffee. 
No. <laughs> Listen, I've got one of them squirty things I can... Uh, this, is, this is what I think. For me, the centrum, Paul Linium, is this. Paul Central Point. It's Latin. You thought it was what? It looks like a... T- Listen, this is my greatest moment when you're bucking it up. I've worked hard to find out what I think. That ruined it for me. Would you like to know what I think? (laughs) Okay. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, I think sets the whole thing out. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And I think you could put all of those things <coughs> in the gospel. You could put the Father, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the righteousness of God, justification, faith, and if they don't get that right, then these look irrelevant. Yeah? The gospel is a mockery if they don't get that right. But the gospel looks brilliant when you get all of those things together. That is my... So, as an apostle, Paul's primary function was to proclaim the gospel of God and the reason of writing, I believe. Uh, Does that say that in any of the commentaries? No, it's an original thought. It's mine. Uh, he He has said this before. He says this to Corinth, Ephesus, Thessalonica, Timothy and Peter. He says this, I am about the gospel. I am about the gospel of God. Put simply, I am defined by God sending his son for the salvation of the world. And he explained, I am set about apart from this task. And therefore, in writing to you, I am writing to you to empower you and equip you to be set apart for the gospel of God. The centrum Paulinium. And I think, if if my application is this, therefore, in reading this letter and preaching from it, it is to define the church, Gateway Church Wrexham, and to empower it and equip it and to set it apart that we exist for the gospel of God. We exist for no other thing than that. And if the reason that you are here is not for the gospel, then, then you have erred from the centrum Paulinium and the reason that he was called and wrote what he did to to the to the early church that is my point amen <laughs>